Good morning, Digital Cathedral family. Good to have you with me on this first Sunday of April. It's spring in Texas, spring has sprung, and the flowers are starting to bloom, and we're having a great time here. Weather's smoothed out. We're having uh, that time of the year when the temperatures are not too hot and they don't go too cold. It's just right in there. So I love April. Love April, love October, November. Those are good times of the year. Hope you had a good week this week. I love hearing from you and uh, the things that you're experiencing as you continue this journey in grace. And so this morning, what I want to do is to finish up on what we started last week, which is talking about this third pillar of a grace culture, grace community. If you remember, we're laying down some basics. We're kind of visiting back some of the teachings that have brought us up to speed to where we are today. And I've been pleasantly surprised at all the testimonies that have come in that have, that have said more or less that even though we're going over some foundations that you're seeing it on a deeper level, you're beginning to experience and you're getting some understanding, some revelation from, from some slants and degrees that maybe you didn't quite see before. So we're gonna talk about inclusion today. One of my favorite topics. I, I love inclusion because it includes everybody. There's nobody left out in the message that we teach. So in a nutshell, the bottom line of inclusion is very simple. It's a very simple truth that we can all agree, that we can all believe on, which makes it one of those essentials for a grace community to embrace. Inclusion says very simply that all of humanity was included. There was nobody excluded. They were all included in everything that Christ did. You were included in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, it goes a step further than maybe what you embraced when you were back there in the evangelical church or over at the charismatic gathering every Sunday morning. Because inclusion says not only did he do this for you, but he did it as you. You were co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-ascended. Everything that he did included all humanity, and he was joined to all humanity, pulled all humanity into himself throughout the entire process. I think that's probably why John said, and there's, there's two good verses here. I think these are really strong inclusion verses. In John chapter 4, verse 42, it says, and John recorded this, And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Nothing can beat that. Nothing can beat a personal revelation. It's, it's good if I teach it. It's good if I tell you that he is the Savior of the world. He included everybody in his death, his burials, resurrection, and ascension. But when you, get a, when you get an understanding of it for yourself, when it drops into your spirit, it's truth for you to embrace. Nobody can talk you out of it. So I, I love what they said to the woman. We believe not because of what you said, but we have seen and heard for ourselves that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So John records that in John's gospel. Then over in, in 1 John, he says somewhat the same thing in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. John says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. You don't hear that too much in the church. He didn't come as the savior of the world to the church. He came as the savior to those that accept him, to those that make a decision, to those that pray the prayer, to those that embrace him, to those that have been baptized, to those that keep all of the church laws, all of the regulations, that live a good life, a pure life, a holy life, then he may just be your savior. But that's not what the scripture declares. 
So this message of inclusion, obviously, is not going to be something that the church in general uh, highly embraces because it's contrary to their doctrine. So if we don't include, here's the problem, if we don't include this pillar of inclusion on this foundation of grace, which is the unconditional love of God extended to us through which he embraces us and brings us into his very life. So the embrace is the inclusion. So if we don't include this, this pillar of inclusion, here's what will happen. We have to make a determination as who's in and who's out. We have to make a determination based on our understanding of who uh, is included and who's excluded, who is righteous and who's unrighteous, who's justified and who's unjustified who's excluded and who's included, who are the people that the Father does not love as they simply are today, or does he embrace and accept everybody just as they are? Who are those for whom Jesus did not die? I've not even been able to get an evangelical to tell me who Jesus did not die for. They will readily admit that Jesus died for everybody, but they turn right around and say, yes, he died for everybody, but unless you accept it, then it does no value for you. So in this essence, we're saying that we finished the finished work of the cross. Jesus said it's finished. But that's not what we really believe, is it? If we say that we have to do something in order to be included. No inclusion comes without us doing anything. So if you're going to disregard inclusion, you're also going to have to disregard so many verses like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that says he, that he tasted death. Listen to this. He tasted death for every man. If you, if, you, if you discard inclusion, then you have to say he did not die for every man. That every man did not taste death through Jesus Christ. You're going to have to eliminate verses like Colossians chapter 3. Let, let me just read that for you here. Colossians chapter 3. Let me read verses 13 and 14. Because these, these are, are really strong verses. And, and it, it pays us to pay attention to what, the, what Paul writes. Because Paul was definitely an inclusionist. He certainly wasn't a Calvinist, an Armenian, or a Universalist. Paul taught us about inclusion. So he says here in, in, in Colossians chapter 2, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Now watch how, watch how he words this. He says, in you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. All right, so you were in a condition of being dead. You, you, you were uncircumcised. You were not a law keeper. That's what he's saying. In the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were not a law keeper. Dead in sins. Not a law keeper. Watch what he says. He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So that it was his action. It was not what you did. It was his action. You were dead in sins. You were not a law keeper. You were not circumcised. And it says he made you alive together with him. So he did, he did the work. He did the action. He fulfilled the task. And he has forgiven you all of your, your trespasses. And it goes on in verse 14. says this is how he did it. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us, and he's taking it out of the way, has taken it out of the way, past tense, and nailed it to the cross. So the finished work is a finished work for everybody. And any, any requirement that we tried to pin on it that would say this is what you need to do to be included, he nailed it to the cross. You being dead in sins and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you 
all of, all of your sins. So when Jesus said, if you don't believe in inclusion, you're going to have to say that when Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, it is finished, he didn't really know what he was doing or what he was saying because not everybody was forgiven. When he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Everybody was not forgiven. If you're going to hold to the, to the case of exclusion. So inclusion is, I readily admit, it challenges your depth of love because it's easy to exclude people. We're well-groomed to do that. We're well-groomed to look at that people group over there. Well, we don't like the way they live. We don't, we don't like their lifestyle, so we just exclude them. He didn't, they better straighten up or God's not going to receive them. Either, listen to me, either you believe in a God who is pure love and has committed himself to relationship. Remember pillar two? He's a relational father. And we also said that the only character trait he has is love and everything flows from that love. So either you believe he is a God who is pure love and has committed himself to relationship no matter how many eons of time it takes and he has time on his side. He can wait as long as it takes. Doesn't matter if it's a thousand years, two thousand years, ten thousand years, love never fails. This, this inclusion that he has. Or you believe in a God of exclusion that is totally unlike the Father that Jesus revealed. Let's all believe that there was no revelation of the Father. There was no right view of the Father until Jesus showed up on the scene. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I don't speak my words. I speak the Father's words so that he could further reveal. This isn't me doing this. It's the Father in me, Jesus said, that's doing the works. So to hold to a God of exclusion, we have to ignore the majority of the things that Jesus did when he walked the planet. Of those that he included, Jesus was very much an inclusionist. You don't find anybody that the Pharisees and the Sadducees excluded that Jesus joined in exclusion also. Those that they exclude, those that the religion of the day that excluded, Jesus embraced. Jesus brought them in. He brought in the woman at the well. He brought in Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery. The list goes on and on and on. You can just look at the 12 that he chose. Roughneck fishermen, Matthew the tax collector. I mean, Matthew made a living out of cheating people, making them pay more taxes than Rome required, than Matthew would give to Rome their part, and he would keep what he was able to chisel from people in overtaxation. The amazing thing about this message of inclusion, the amazing thing about the, the gospel of grace that we teach, that we embrace, is that the world has no problem with it. It's the church that has problem with it. The world had no problem when Jesus taught it. The world had no problem when Paul brought it. We all know that it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of the day, that, that could not believe that Jesus would embrace those that he embraced. In fact, when he claimed to be the Son of God, who embraced all, it cost him his life. They murdered him. They crucified him. When Paul taught the gospel of inclusion, when he taught the gospel of grace, when he taught a love from the Father that embraces everybody, that, it, that imparts life to everybody, it was the Judaizers that came to Paul that followed him every church he went to and told people, listen, don't believe Paul. He's got part of the truth, but he's a heretic. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law plus Jesus. 
And that's the pre prevalent message today. Yeah, Jesus is good. We understand Jesus died for our sins, but you must accept him. You must keep the law. You must do good. You must be a righteous person as well as accept Jesus. So it's not, it's not in including you until you do certain things. And that's, that's what the Judaizers were teaching. They follow Paul everywhere. They, I think they were the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about, <clears throat> the messengers of, of, a, of an oppressive force that hindered him every place he went. And finally, he got the revelation that they were not going to destroy the gospel, that God's grace was sufficient. That's just my personal view. I can't prove that from Scripture any more than I can prove the thorn in the flesh was a physical malady or bad eyesight or whatever other teachings have gone out about what the thorn in the flesh is. I personally believe it was those that followed Paul that harassed him, that tried to disrupt his message of inclusion. Paul's, Paul's oppressors are what he called uh, those that taught another gospel, that presented another Jesus. And I'm firmly convinced that if Jesus lived today, if Paul lived today, not only would not, he not be ordained by the National Association of Evangelicals, he wouldn't be invited to preach over at the First Baptist Church or over at the Charismatic Church or the United Pentecostal Church. They would look at Jesus and look at Paul and say, those are false teachers. They're heretics. They're not holding to the truth. They have a seductive teaching. Don't listen to them. Don't go to their seminars. Don't listen to their YouTube videos because they're not teaching the truth. Now, let me just slow this down a little bit. I want to examine this very carefully this morning because I think you need to be able to explain to your friends, your, your church friends, what this thing of inclusion is and what does the scripture say about it? I have yet to meet an evangelical Christian who does not believe in inclusion when it comes to first Adam. They will tell you quickly and boldly and with a lot of strength that everybody was in Adam when he died. Then they will turn right around and argue with you about the inclusion of humanity in the last Adam. The Bible's not vague about this. The Bible is not vague about the inclusion in the last Adam. Every person that was in first Adam, whatever you think first Adam did, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail this morning. I know probably, maybe some of you think that Adam uh, gave us a fallen nature or sin nature or separated us from God. I don't know what you're, I don't personally believe that. I don't think that Adam had the power to, to, uh, inflict upon us a, a nature that ever excluded us or separated us from God. I do think he opened the door for sin. I think he brought the whole thing into the planet. I think that's what Romans 5.12 is getting at, that through Adam we all entered into sin, but we all made the choice to sin. All men sinned. It was our choice. It was our, our uh, you know, what we, we decided that we would want to do. We went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate for ourselves. But the Bible's very clear about this. It, let me state here, I'm, I'm probably going to say this a couple times because I want you to get firmly fixed on this. In the Father's view, there's only been two men that have ever lived on the planet. First Adam, last Adam. Everybody that was in first Adam now is in last Adam. Whatever you think first Adam did, whatever you think he tied up, whatever you think he messed up, last Adam came and untied, unmessed, and fixed. He repaired, totally restored. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. This is a verse that you never want to, to uh, abandon. This is a, a, a verse that I think just says it so clearly that you would, you would need uh, 
the charismatic pastor over at the local church to help you to misunderstand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. And I like the will be because it's an ongoing process of every person that comes into the planet comes in in Christ. I, you can't say the word all applies to all in Adam, but when it says even so shall all be made alive in Christ, you can't say the all of the last Adam is lesser than the all in the first Adam. And if you do, then you're empowering the first Adam greater than the last Adam. And come on now, the Son of God, the last Adam, it does not take a subservient position to the first Adam. It's inclusion both ways. It has to be. So as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We're not talking about one all in one situation and another all. See, what the church has done is made the all in Adam be all, but the all in Christ be a few based on their choice, based on their decision. Even my hard-headed pastor friends, I have a still have a few that are over there in the evangelical church. They believe in inclusion when it comes to the first Adam. All of a sudden, however, when you talk about last Adam, they change the lens of viewing. They change the, they change the microscope that they're examining this through. So inclusion says this. It says, let's just give Jesus the honor the privilege, the power of having as much impact on mankind as what first Adam did. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't think that's a, a, a bodacious claim to say last Adam, Jesus, God in the flesh, had as much impact, as much power, as much ability as the first Adam. So whatever you think first Adam did, I don't, I don't really, it doesn't really matter anymore because whatever you think he did, last Adam undid. So the question you got to deal with is this, in your own thinking, is your Jesus big enough, is he powerful enough to have made right everything that first Adam did wrong? I found a real freedom in this. One of the freedoms that I found in grace and inclusion is this. It frees me from having to defend a theology. I don't defend any theology. I'm certainly not a Calvinist. I'm not an Armenian. I'm not a Universalist. I don't defend any theology anymore. That's what, that's what this message does. It frees you. You don't, have to, you don't have to defend a theology. All we are is seekers of truth. And there are going to be things that I believe today that next year, five years from now, are going to be tweaked. And they're going to be enhanced. And this whole thing of who we are as new creations, I think is only going to get bolder and only going to get stronger. As we see more, as revelation, as revelation flourishes, as the power of what we understand Jesus did on the cross and how it applies to us as new creations, we really are a new creation. Old things have passed away, including Adam. The inclusion in the crucifixion, you were crucified with Christ. It is appointed unto man once to die. You died your death with Jesus. You're not going to die anymore. Jesus said, he that believes on me will never die. Do you believe this? And Mary says, yeah, I believe about the resurrection. She tapped on some religious verbiage. and Jesus probably just shook his head, rolled his eyes and said, you don't get it. That in me, you have life eternal. So who's included in Christ? Who's included? Who's excluded? It's like, this, when I buy an extended warranty, I don't like them to tell me everything that the warranty includes. I'm, I want them to tell me what it doesn't include. Okay? I want you to tell me, this, what, this is what is not covered. 
So let's just look at, at a couple of verses real quick. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. I read this verse often. Uh, <clears throat> I read it often because there's so much truth in it. And for me, this is one of those light bulb verses that when I when I got when I got a hold of Colossians 3:11, it it cleared up a lot of mystery to me. Watch what he says. Let's look at who's included, who's excluded. Colossians 3:11. He says, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. I like the way he walks through all these people groups. He takes all the people groups that were well known in the day of Paul. He looks at the Greek, he looks at the Jew, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the barbarian, and the Scythian. The Scythian was the most unevangelized group of people in the frozen tundra of Russia that had never heard the gospel. And yet he says Christ is all, and he's even in those Scythians. The message that Paul is getting across here is that nobody's excluded. There's nobody on the outside looking in. There's no window shoppers. There's no haves, there's no have-nots. Christ is all, and he's absolutely in all. It's, it's as Paul said, oh man, I can't remember the, the, the address. I think it's, it's in Corinthians chapter 6 or chapter 8. He says, but all men do not have this truth. They have not been awakened to this truth. They haven't embraced it yet. Doesn't, it doesn't eliminate the validity of the truth. It just means we haven't known it yet. And there are churches full of people this morning, Sunday morning, 10 a.m., 11 a.m., that are worshiping, that are sincere people, love Jesus with all their heart, love God with all their heart, but they are eternally insecure because they're not sure that they have done enough, they're not sure they've believed the right thing, that they've believed enough, that their faith has been strong enough, that it will eternally hold them. But once you understand the inclusion, it, th this is the most secure, this, this ties security down so tight to me. When we see that we were co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-ascended, that he didn't do it just for us, he did it as us. We were with him every step of the way. All right, let me give you one more verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Back up just a little bit to the left. You know, you really ought to, you ought to really have your Bibles out when we go because I'm still old school, guys. I still read my Bible. I still teach out of the Bible. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. This is good. But of him you are in Christ who was made for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But of him you are in Christ. It was his doing. He included you. That, that's what it means. But of him you are in Christ. Because of him. Because of his doing. Because of his action. His initiative. His power. His strength. His ability. Because of him or but of him you are in Christ. He was made to us. He was made to us. He did the action. He was made to us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All those words that people today are sitting in church trying to embrace, trying to get a hold of, trying to merit, trying to earn. He said he's given it to you, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. So this pillar of inclusion, let me tell you why I, I, I love it so much. This is, there's many reasons, but this is one. The pillar of inclusion lets me begin to teach from a position, from a starting point of being embraced. I used to have to teach from a starting point of being separated because we gave credit to first Adam and the separation that he brought to all humanity. So everything started with separation. 
But when you come to the gospel of grace, when you come to Paul's message, you come to what Jesus died to give us as us, you don't have to start with separation. You start with the embrace. You, grace, remember the definition of grace? Grace is the unconditional love of God extended to us by which he embraces us. The starting point is the embrace. The starting point is the bringing of us into his life. That's the starting point. We don't have to go back to Adam for our starting point. In fact, Adam is not early enough. You have to go back before the foundation of the world to understand that the Father included you and embraced you as a son. That's what Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says, that he embraced us, destined us to be sons before the foundation of the world. Now, if you enjoy digging just a little bit deeper into Scripture, uh, you ought to grab some study material and dig into Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. There's two powerful chapters in the, in the post-resurrection scripture that you, really, that you really ought to read and almost memorize. One is Romans 5 and the other is 2 Corinthians 5. It talks about inclusion. It talks about who we are, what we are, what we possess. It talks about reconciliation. And that's what he talks about in Romans chapter 5. If you really want to study this out, Romans chapter 5 verse 11 is a, is, a, is a great verse, but the whole chapter is good. The whole chapter of Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 will really give you a leg up on some of this. And I would, I would encourage you to look at it from several different versions. Get the Passion Translation, the New Living Translation, the Amplified. Haul out whatever you want and just begin to pull some jewels out of, out of these verses. Romans chapter 5 verse 11. And not only that. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, now we're going to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. Present tense. We have now received the reconciliation. This is one verse that will change your entire perspective about whether it was your decision or whether it was his decision whether it was your choice or whether it was his choice that made you included. Now let me read it again. And I want you to catch the inclusion in this. He said, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. How did you receive it? Through Jesus Christ, you have received it. He has implanted it. Now that word reconciled, and here's, here's what I'm going to take you on this. That word reconciled has deep meaning. And you can check it out. Basically, there's, there's a meaning to this reconciliation that literally means to exchange. The connotation of the word points to money exchangers who would take your foreign currency and then give you the currency of the country that you entered into. If you go to Mexico, if you've ever been to Mexico, I went a couple, three years ago with Steve McVeigh and we did some ministering around in Mexico. And one of the first things I did when I got there was to exchange my dollars for pesos. If you go to Canada, you exchange your dollars for the currency of Canada. That's one of the first things that you do. So you exchange currencies. What Paul is saying is that the life that man had in Adam now we have received the reconciliation. He's saying the life that we had in Adam has been exchanged for another life. Now we've received it. Now we understand it. Now we're aware of it. Adam's life was taken from us. Sovereign God, 
omnipotent. He can extract that life from you. And we have been given Christ's life in its place. There's been an exchange that's gone on here. Scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling or exchanging worlds, exchanging kingdoms for us. So we don't have Adam's life anymore. It's been exchanged out. We don't have his life anymore. You Look at me. You were not born in Adam. Don't buy that, that lie. You were not born in Adam. When Jesus died, Adam's race was obliterated. There is no more. The, entire, the Adamic race died. It was nailed to the cross. There is no Adam after last Adam. The Bible never calls Jesus second Adam. It calls him last Adam. So the, there's no last Adam. I mean, there's no Adam after the last Adam. When a guy on death row has served his last meal, he's never going to eat another meal on this planet again. It's the last one. No meals follow. Jesus being the last Adam means that there's no Adams that follow. We were in Adam when he disobeyed. We were also in Christ when he obeyed. There's only been two men ever live on the planet in the eyes of the Father. First Adam, last Adam. They represented us and what they did, we were included in it. In first Adam, we were included when he opened the door to sin. We all walked through it in sin. Romans 5.12 tells you that very plainly. When Jesus came, he died our death. We died with him, co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-ascended. Romans chapter 5. While you're in that fifth chapter of Romans, if you're still there, let's drop down from verse 11 that says, Now we have been reconciled. And let's drop down to verse 19 that says this. This nails it. For if by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, everybody came in that group, also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Do you see how explicit Paul makes this? He doesn't give everybody in first Adam and then say we've got to draw this whole list of conditions to be in last Adam. He just says there's only two. There's only Adam and last Adam. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's disobedience, many will be made righteous. And again, you can't make the many made sinners by Adam be a greater number than the many made righteous by Christ at the end of the verse. Come on, that's, not, that's, that's no kind of hermeneutic. That's no way to read your Bible or to interpret Scripture. Yet that's exactly what the church has done. The church has come with a message of separation to keep you as a returning customer and a paying customer, which has fed the machine. People are waking up to that today. They're not going for it. Coming out in droves. Church attendance is the lowest percentage of, of adults that it's ever been in the history of our country. And it's because people's eyes are opening up. And it's not just in the United States of America. It's around the world. It's catching. You think the pandemic... <laughs> With the coronavirus caught fast, this thing is spreading faster than the coronavirus ever thought of spreading. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 is, I mean, it just lays it out. It just says, look, one man's obedience, many were made sinners. One man's obedience, many were made righteous. Full stop. Full stop. Now come back to that 11th verse for just a minute. I want to point one thing out I forgot to point out while we were there. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. It is a done deal. The word reconciled that is used there is in the Greek, in the Greek, is done in a what is called a passive voice. 
a passive voice. And that means simply that when that word reconciled is used, it speaks and says that we were not active in the process. It is a passive voice. You can study it out for yourself. Don't believe it just because I'm telling you. You run it down for yourself. The word reconciled there is in the passive voice. That means we did nothing. Zero, zip, nada. We had no, we had no skin in the game. We did nothing to possess it. They were, we were passive. It just happened to us. I mean, come on, seriously. Do you think that a sovereign God that is omnipotent, that has created the universe, needs your approval, needs your okay, your permission, your decision to reconcile you? Uh, Colossians 1.13, here's the reconciliation. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. It says that he has done it. I've done nothing in that. I'm passive. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and he's translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. So by his doing, he took us out of one kingdom and put us into another kingdom. And the only, the only progression we have today, the only part we play in this is learning how to function in this kingdom. Learning how to live out everything that we already possess. It means simply that what the word speaks in this passive voice that we were not active in the process. I cannot emphasize that enough. This is the power of the gospel. This exchanged life is not because we did something. It's because he did something. And now we've come in on the benefit. We have an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. An inheritance is direct deposited into your account. If your rich uncle dies and he leaves you a million dollars, when they read the will, they will take that and they will ask you, what's your checking account number? And they will electronically transfer it into your check. You don't have to go get the check and cash it. They will deposit it. God made it happen and you and I have benefited from it. See, we, we did not, we could not reconcile ourselves. We didn't have the, if we could have reconciled ourselves to God. See, God didn't reconcile himself to us. He's always reconciled us from the, from the get-go, from Adam on. He's always been reconciled to man. We did not reconcile ourselves. We didn't have the ability. If we could have reconciled ourselves, if we could have gotten rid of what Paul said was his separation, alienation in our minds, the head trip by wicked works. If we could, if we could have ridded that ourselves, Jesus would not have had to come. He came to exchange, to reconcile. He reconciled us to himself by his eternal, sovereign, one-way decision. And the Father objectively, factually, made that before the foundation of the world. Jesus came to live it out in time. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, to complete the exchange. Our disobedience for his obedience our rebellion for his submission, our faithlessness for his faithfulness, our death in Adam for the life that he had in Christ. Right? So it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, this is another verse that you need to become extremely familiar with. And it's out of that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 chapter that I said is one that you should really nail down. Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5. For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he made him to become sin with our sin that we could be made righteous with his righteousness. You had nothing to do with it. 
He did it for you as you. He did it for you as you. I've made a tremendous discovery of freedom. And that discovery is that the plans of the Father, the plans that the Father set in motion, His will, His intentions, are never thwarted, are never diverted, are never subverted, are never negated, are not kryptonited by man's frail, uh, anemic, up today, down tomorrow will. God's will does not subject itself to our will. There's only one free will in the universe. It's His. It's His. Daddy does what He likes. Daddy does what He wants. Daddy declares it. And then after He declares His will, the will will come to pass. I don't think you can find one place in in this book, in this New Testament, that God ever says, this is my will, that He doesn't fulfill it. He doesn't complete the plan. So Paul said something that will shake your world about whether God's mercy is only given to those who decide to receive it and ask for it or whether he just imparts it and whether he wills it and gives it to all men. The Old Testament Testament even recognized it. The Old Testament said his mercy endures forever. His mercy does not stop in your life when you drop this flesh suit. Death is not the end of the story. Do you think you're not going to continue to grow eternally? Paul said it's going to take the ages to come to discover the riches of God's grace and his love toward us in Christ Jesus. Death has never been the end of the story. Religion has made it the end of the story because they want to close the sale. They're looking for a convert. But to say that an eternal spirit, which you, which you have, you're going to live forever. That everything that is done in four score and ten years, three score and ten years, it's his, that, that's the final act of the whole play? Absolutely not. Now watch what, Paul addresses this. Is, is mercy given to me because I beg and plead and squall and ball and ask for it? I show God that I really desire it? Or is it given to me on his will, on his behalf? Does the sovereign God say, I'm going to show mercy to you? Let's, let's look at this, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I tell you what, we're, we're putting some sacred cows on the grill this morning, aren't we? And I'm going to put some more on there next week. I'm going to tell you in a few minutes what I'm going to do next week. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Romans chapter 9. Let me get back there. I got so wound up in what I was saying, I lost my place in Scripture here. Romans chapter 9 and verse 15 says this. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Now, is that his choice or your choice? That's his choice. He said, I'll have mercy on anybody I want to have mercy on. And whoever I will, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And if that doesn't nail it down tight enough, that that, that Paul said, it's God's doing. God's the mercy dispenser. It's It's not your wish. He nails it down in verse 16. Paul says this, so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs that does some kind of physical exploit, that deserves it, that earns it. It's of God who shows mercy. Now that's a mind-blowing verse. Those are two mind-blowing verses. The predominant message of the modern church and that you and I were subjected to for years and years and years, some of us, some of us 30, 40, 50 years, is that God will show mercy if we show ourselves deserving of it, if we want it, if we choose it, if we ask him for it then he may extend mercy toward us. 
He may reconcile you. He may justify you. He may forgive you. He may make you righteous. He may impart to you his life. But you must be the instigator. You must be the initiator. And then he will respond to you. And all the verses that we've read this morning on this message of inclusion are exactly the opposite. He is the initiator. He is the instigator. And we are the passive ones. We just acknowledge it. Now I want you to I want to I want to go I want to go back and read those verses from from Romans chapter 9 and I want you just to make up your decision and your mind as to who who's doing this 9 verse 15 he says to Moses I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs but of God who shows mercy do you see the difference between man's doctrine and what the Bible says. Man's doctrine says that God only gives mercy to those that desire it. Thank God this morning. Thank God his mercy does not depend on our will, but his will. So then it is not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but it comes from the will of the one that shows mercy and compassion unto those that he desires. Thank God his mercy doesn't depend on us. It's not our commitment to him. Never been about our commitment to him. The whole eye-opening, awakening experience has been about his commitment to us. It's never been about my, my faith toward him. It's been about his faith toward us. Whose will is actually in play throughout this entire grace gospel, this good news that we bring? It's been his will, his desire, his doing. I grow increasingly concerned when I see people that are still stuck in taking this beautiful, simplistic message of the cross, the completeness of the cross, the finished work of the cross, the grace, the character of my daddy that is love, the message of inclusion, and they subtly and increasingly replace it with a message that is another gospel that brings another Jesus to the table. That's what Paul fought in, in Galatians. He said, I can't believe how fast you guys have slipped away from what I presented to you. And the things I'm presenting to you this morning is what Paul presented. Paul said, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised how fast you slipped away from this for another gospel following another Jesus. I see religion drawing so many lines in the sand saying, well, God won't go over this line. God won't go over there to get them. That lifestyle he certainly is not going to embrace. You, you're doing this, you're on the outside. I see so many times those lines that we've drawn. And then I read, then I read in my scripture where Jesus comes and he just erases all the lines. He obliterates all the lines and he includes everybody. God never waited for us to seek him. From the very beginning of time, God was seeking us. The gospel is true. The gospel is scandalously full of favor. All of it is totally unmerited. We didn't do anything to deserve it or to earn it. Let's, let's, all, let's all believe this morning about this inclusion thing. Let's all agree that the Father has included all of us. He's embraced all of us. The, the person you like the least, he's embraced exactly the same as you. And he's brought us all into his life. I was thinking this week, I don't know if you still practice communion, the Eucharist, Last Supper, whatever you want to call it. I, I was looking at that in scripture this week. And there probably is not any act that we've ever done that shows the Father's heart 
and the inclusion more than that meal. It was all pre-cross. It was pre-cross. It's been a while since I've taken communion. I have no problem with it. It is, it is a little bit of a religious act. And I think, you know, the finished work of the cross probably takes... But if you, if you take communion, that's fine. I don't, no struggle with it. But, but I, what, I, what I really saw in that is that this first communion he served to these 12 men. He included everybody in the meal. Because that's what communion represents. It's, a, it's an inclusive meal. Now, I was trained, when I went to school, here's what they said. When you serve communion, here's what they trained the preacher boys. When you serve communion, it's only for believers. It's a believer's meal. So we need to examine ourselves. They take the scripture from, they need to examine ourselves. We got any sin, you need to get rid of it. So before we did communion, we always repented of sins. We didn't know any sin we committed, but we still repented because we didn't want to take the meal unworthily. Taking it unworthily means that you don't think you're worthy to take it. That's really what it's getting at. But here's my point. When Jesus served that meal, he served it to everybody. He included everybody. Now, over to First Baptist Church or over at the Charismatic Church, the United Pentecostal Church, they would have excluded almost everybody around that table except Jesus. First, they would have excluded Judas. Jesus, when Jesus looked at Judas, he knew that Judas was a betrayer. That was in Judas's heart. He surely would have been excluded for a communion. The second guy he would have been excluded would have been Peter the denier. Then we got Thomas sitting down there, the doubter. Even after the resurrection, he said, Jesus, I don't know if it's you. Let me put my fingers in the nails and let me thrust my... I, I, I got to know that it's really you. Then that set next to him, we got Matthew the tax collector. That guy was a real scoundrel. And like I said earlier in the teaching today, he made his living from overcharging and he pocketed lots of money. He was, he was probably, he probably had some, a few shekels in the bank saved up. Then down the table, we got Peter, uh, we got James and John, the sons of thunder. They got an anger issue down there, man. Do you remember when they said to Jesus, let's call fire down on those people. Let's consume them. Let's, let's kill them. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. They're setting they're going to take communion. If we went around that table, the only person that the Baptist church, that the evangelical church would say was fit to take communion would have been Jesus. You could eliminate every one of them. Yet Jesus made it an inclusive meal. You know why he did? Because he was an inclusive savior. He knew that what he was about to go to the cross and perform, that Judas was dying with him, that Peter was dying his death with him, that those 11, as imperfect as they were by religious standards, by the Sadducees and Pharisees, by what they would have required. They would have all been eliminated, but Jesus included all of them. Simply because the communion is not about who believes. It's not about who doesn't doubt. It's not about who has faith. It's not about who qualifies. The communion is the gift of Jesus, and this is so inclusive. It's about Jesus giving himself breaking the bread off, giving part of himself to everybody, saying, look, I'm embracing you into my life. Isn't that how we define grace? It is, the, it is the unconditional love of God extended to us by which he embraces us. He embraced us, and then the wine, he imparted to them his very life. He, he embraced them and gave them his very life. That's, this, this meal is the consummate demonstration of inclusion and grace. So here's what I'm saying. I, I, I've got to wrap this up. 
I'm saying that we, you and I, have got to become very inclusive in our view. We can't exclude anybody. Who are we to exclude anybody? Who are we to say anybody is unworthy? When Jesus died for all. So let's believe this morning. Let's believe it together. This is what a grace culture has got to infuse back in, into the lives of people. That we serve a God of grace. We serve a God that is relational. We serve a God whose only character trait is love. And he's very inclusive. He's included all of us. That's the good news of the gospel. There is no bad news in the good news. There's no bad news, good news. It's all good news. And I don't think you can get a better news than saying that you and I are included fully and entirely. Warts, pimples, moles, and all were included in the family. And he embraces us and gives us his life. All right, God bless you. Now, Sunday morning, I'm going to do something. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to do something very special. I get a lot of messages and um, emails from people that no longer go to church. Because basically, there's two groups of people here at the Digital Cathedral. The nuns and the duns. The, the nuns are those that have no, no grace church to go to. And there's very few of them around. They have no grace church to go to that teach this message. Then the second group are the duns. They're done with church. They're not going back. They see it's hypocritical. The system is, is messed up, jacked up. They've been abused. They're hurt. And those are, are the duns. But there's still a spiritual hunger. The problem the church has today is that they are not, they are not scratching where the spiritual itch is. People are spiritually hungry, man. That's why I gather with you on Sunday morning. I'm spiritually hungry. I want to gather with you and pull together. So they, I get emails and messages and questions about, man, I feel bad I don't go to church. I'm in habit of going to church. I wish I'd go to church. I miss the fellowship. I don't like what they do, but I like being around people. How do I handle this? Well, I want to address that next Sunday morning. Because you're a group, you're a class of people that the Father has called out. And he's now going to send you to leaven the lump. I want to talk about that to you next week, how you can deal with not being part of a fellowship that meets in a building that you did perhaps for years. So it's going to be good. So we're going to share a lot of truth next Sunday morning. Might be a good time to invite a friend to say, look, let's see what that heretic over there, let's see what that Keith Lee guy's got to say about this whole situation. All right, I'm done for today. God bless you. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for support. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for your friendship, your love, your devotion and for gathering with me on Sunday morning and Wednesday night at The Secret Place, 7 o'clock. We'll see you then. We'll see you back next Sunday, 10 a.m. Central, right here. And we're going to talk about how I can deal with not going to a building and gathering with people in my Christian experience. God bless you. See you next time.